By the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel, we've heard amazing stories of what Jesus has done. He's healed a leper of all people, not only physically treating a disease completely beyond the understanding of the time, but healing a human from total social isolation. Jesus has restored a paralyzed man only after recognizing the faith of the man's friends who seek the healing on his behalf. Jesus has shared time and meals with sinners and tax collectors, butting heads with the authorities. And every time he gets into one of these heady conflicts, Jesus puts the Pharisees in their place, which is a place of blindness. The Pharisees, the scribes, the other powerful people, they don't see what the blind man is made to see, that Jesus is the Messiah. By the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel, the disciples have seen and they've heard a lot. So much that by this point in the gospel, they think they know who Jesus is and what Jesus means. In the story right before today's text that you just heard read, Jesus asks, who are people saying that I am? They're walking together and they say, well, you know, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. But of course, as quickly as Peter gives the right answer, he shows that he doesn't understand what that answer means. You are the Messiah, Peter says. So Jesus goes on to explain. It's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be put to death, and after three days, rise again. Of course, the disciples hear this, and it sounds kind of like somebody on Valentine's Day asking, so how did you two lovebirds meet? And the answer given is 64,238. Like, what? You are the Messiah? means something quite particular to Peter and the whole of Israel, really, for Jesus to follow that up with, right, and so, being the Messiah, I must go suffer, die, and rise. This makes no sense. And so, Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and that's when Jesus summons the whole crowd to join the disciples in this moment when Jesus wants to say, if anyone wishes to follow me, let that person deny their self take up their cross, and follow me. Another what moment. It had to be a head-scratcher for these disciples. So, to our text for today, six days after that confusion, Messiah cross guy Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on a hike up a high mountain where they're alone by themselves. And that's where something very important happens for these disciples. It turns out watching other people experience a healing, watching Jesus pull in that leper, watching Jesus name the power of the faith of those friends, watching something happen for other people is in fact different from having your own experience. For these three disciples, we call their experience the transfiguration. And I have to admit that every year when we come to this Sunday, I can't shake a scene from the Lord of the Rings. You're lucky I don't do this more often. But So Frodo's on his way to destroy the Ring of Power, and he and his fellowship, they find themselves among the elves. In fact, in the presence of the mightiest and fairest of all the elves, Galadriel, 
You, you can't even say that name without it sounding quite lovely. Kate Blanchett plays Galadriel perfectly. She just looks controlled and elegant and confident. I imagine she kind of laughs in slow motion, you know, like, <laughs> that's the kind of effect she has. She portrays a rare kind of beautiful other, but she's also kind and interested, not, not aloof and self-righteous, so wise. People are just drawn to her. I'm going to spare you all the details of the scene, but Frodo eventually offers Galadriel the ring of power. He trusts her wisdom that much. But for her, she knows it's a test. She knows the limits of her wisdom. She knows the ring would destroy her, twisting her from a wise and caring one to a selfish, power-hungry monster. Frodo's just thinking, well, it seems like you've got a better chance of destroying this thing than I do. He mistakes her for a person who's simply more capable than himself, and he mistakes himself as someone less capable than what this moment requires. The reason the scene comes to mind every Transfiguration Sunday for me is that after offering the ring, Galadriel transfigures before him. She does not transform. You know, that would mean she'd turn into something else completely, something other than what she was. Instead, she transfigures into her full self. She shows fully who she is. Although already stunning and elegant, all of a sudden light beams shine from her. Her voice continues to include her normal, beautiful tone, but also layered on is like a scary tone. In an instant, she goes from only looking kind and fair to looking beautiful and terrible. The kind of terrible that's not like, you know, oh, that's awful, but awesome, formidable. And that's when she says, I'm sorry for the Lord of the Rings kind of language here, but in place of a dark Lord, you would have a queen. Not dark, but beautiful and terrible as the dawn, treacherous as the sea, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. And then she returns just like that to her less frightening self and decides not to accept the ring. And she says, I pass the test. I will remain Galadriel. And Frodo's just like wide-eyed in front of what's just happened. But he learns from his mistake. He learns that perhaps he is more capable, more right for this task than he thought he was. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before them. The disciples and many others may have been chewing on that latest lesson from Jesus six days ago, that He is the Messiah, but that that means He must go, suffer, die, and rise. For six days, they've been thinking on this, and what may be causing their brain block is that Jesus is so human, human to our greatest degree, 100% strong and faithful and confident and wise and all the best of all of us. But what they haven't squared in their hearts yet is that Jesus is also 100% God. Jesus is not simply a morality guide or an ethics professor. Jesus is not just a better version of the Pharisees or the chief priests. When Peter said Messiah, 
Peter was thinking of the best example that's ever been known, David. Well, Jesus is Messiah far beyond David. This anointed one, Jesus as Messiah, would not simply make life better for the nation. Jesus, this Messiah, would make life and death changed for all the nations. This Jesus is so much more than who Peter thinks he is. And so his clothes become dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter is awestruck. The moment is terrible. The kind of terrible that's not awful but awesome, formidable. It's a moment of wonder, a moment Peter will probably remember and try to process for the rest of his life. I mean, think of a moment like that in your life. Kind of scary, kind of thrilling all at once. There's a feeling of danger and freedom somehow all at once. And Peter tries to just hang on to this moment with the transfigured Jesus and the vision of Moses and Elijah who each had their own moments with God on high mountains. If I'm Peter, I'm wondering, why am I here of all people? Like Frodo, who thought he perhaps was less capable than what that task required. Peter may have looked around, seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and may have wondered, why am I here? And then that's made clear. He's he's there because the whole scene is for him and James and John. They're here to see and experience and hear a voice. A cloud overshadows them. I imagine the wind picking up at this point. And here in this high place with the transfigured, holy Jesus, God, man, right in front of him, with Elijah and Moses right there, with his buddies James and John right there with him, from this cloud, a voice says, this is my beloved. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly, When they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, just Jesus. They saw only Jesus, God's Son, God's beloved. Jesus listened to him. In this story, the disciples are not only made to see Jesus, the whole of his 100% human, 100% God person, they're also made to see themselves. That they are being called to come along for the ride. Jesus, human and God, all of Jesus will die for all the world. Leaving the disciples to take up their own cross and follow him. At the transfiguration, the disciples are given a really clear picture of the dual nature of Jesus. Human and God. But they're also put on a path toward living into the dual nature of Christians, those who follow Jesus. And it's not a path that simply stays put on the mountaintop. The path does not end in the midst of the thrill of the transfiguration moment. The path leads away from all the wonder 
away from all the unanswerable questions and mystery, and not to simple answers. That's not where the path is going. It's also not going to complicated answers. The path Peter is told to walk, the listen-to-him path, is not a path to all the answers. We'd like that. That's what Peter is after. Let's just stay right here and make some dwelling places even and just, you know, talk it all out. What is life? Who am I? And stuff. At its worst, that's what religion does. It just tries to stay up there in the glory of that mountaintop moment, trying to squeeze more answers out of God so that we can have the answers and then judge everybody else and be right about everything. But the voice says, listen to him. And the last thing he'd taught them was about how he had to go suffer, die, and rise, and that they should take up their cross and follow him. As much as the disciples see the dual nature of Jesus, they're also confronted with our own dual natures, that we are dust. To dust we shall return. Those words will be spoken again this Wednesday as we begin the season of Lent. It's always, every year, of course, very sobering to remember that each and every one of us will die. But that is not all we are called to remember. We are dust, but we are also dust claimed by God, called to follow Jesus to the cross, living for our neighbor rather than ourselves, dying to sin and death every day. So that in our return to dust, we shall rise with Jesus who died as dust himself and rose. We will never fully comprehend how all that works. Grace and life and death and mercy and pain. But we can remember that Jesus is more than just a self-help guru. He's our Savior. And we can remember that that Savior calls us to believe that although dust, we are made to be more capable than we think we are, able to endure grief by holding on to hope, able to live through guilt by accepting forgiveness, able to be generous, kind, and welcoming to our neighbor, even when that neighbor is way different than ourselves. We are able to love as God loves, all because Jesus first loved us. And so we go, suffer, die, and we shall rise. Thanks be to God. Amen.